we've been walking through the uh, epistle of First John over the last few weeks, and so uh, we land, we've been w- working our way through uh, passage by passage, and we are in uh, chapter 2, verses 28, all the way to chapter 3 and verse 3 today, and so um, let's read that before we kind of dive into um, what God has to uh, speak to us today. In First John chapter 2 and verse 28, uh, John records, And now little children abide in him, so that when he ha- appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Verse 3, chapter 3 and verse 1, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. In this passage, John lays out uh, two specific uh, movements that I kind of want to spend some time looking at today. If I were to kind of just lay out a, a map for the next, uh, for our time together over the next few minutes, uh, it's to look at the two expressions of God's love that are laid out in this passage and how we as God's children must respond to those, respond, uh, to those expressions of God's love. Make sense? Two expressions of God's love and how we as his children might respond to it. The first expression of God's love has been quoted a couple of times already today in worship and in, uh, in Duncan's prayer, and that is in chapter 3 and verse 1, where John records, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we shall be called children of God. John records that the first demonstration or the first expression of God's love for us as children is the adoption of us as his own children. That is the first demonstration that we have in this passage that John records for us um, as being God's first demonstration of his love. And one of the things that, we, um, that I find interesting as, we, as I look at this passage, if you were to zoom out a little bit and look at uh, where we've been from 1 John chapter 1, um, I believe all the way to maybe chapter 4 or so, John uh, kind of focuses or centers around this theme of God being light. That is this kind of big theme that we look at. And then in the second half of the book, uh, um, or, or excuse me, from chapter 3, in the middle of chapter 3 all the way through chapter 5, he talks about God being love. So it's interesting when John kind of takes a break from his idea of God being light in the, middle of, in the beginning of chapter 3 and kind of just jumps into, almost impromptu, into this idea of, being, of God being love and we being his children. And I think what's uh, interesting about that is uh, as we, as we uh, think about um, uh, what, it, what John is talking about here, as we look at the kind of the underlying language that's being used here, John is almost adoring or asking his uh, readers to adore God's love for them. Right? It's almost like he's been writing about God being light and then he almost out of the overflow of his heart says, but admire this love that he has for you. As, that has caused us to be adopted into his family. And that is, I think, an interesting uh, movement that John kind of falls into uh, because part of, the, part, of the, one of the, part of the reason that we uh, see um, 
John asking his readers to admire is almost asking them to uh, admire this love because it's not something that we're used to. If you look at the underlying language, it almost describes this love as a love that is foreign to us, a love that is from a foreign country. And so it's almost like a love that we haven't experienced. And so John says, look at this love, this foreign love that God has shown to us that has made us his children. And that love that John describes here, the underlying uh, Greek word there is agape, uh, is, is God's unconditional love for us. And this love that he has for us has moved us, his enemies, people that have rebelled against him, people that have fought against him, people that hate God. This, this love that he has for us has moved us from that state to being God's children, from, of moving us from enemies of God to being children of God. And that is John's big, uh, big uh, statement here about God's demonstration of his love. I think the, uh, the, the critical thing as we think about um, John's uh, description of God's love is uh, to, to ensure that when, when we look at uh, God's love, we're not just seeing God as being distant and not doing anything it's, it uh, demonstrates that he is willing to be with us and his ultimate goal is to, be, to live in harmony with us. So that's kind of God, John's first demonstration of God's love for us. He then moves his readers uh, into what our response needs to be as his children. And that's the second point that I want to make to you. So God's demonstration of his love for us results in his adoption of us and our response to him is uh, captured in chapter, chapter 2 and verse 29, in which he says, If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Again, here John uh, writes that everyone that is born of God, or everyone that claims the status of God's child, practices righteousness. I, I don't know about you, I, I think it's a definitely an interesting way of phrasing the idea of uh, practice of righteousness, right? About practicing righteousness. Why does John even land on this idea of practicing righteousness? I mean, what does it even mean to practice righteousness? Like, we understand what it means to practice basketball or Spanish or math or whatever the case may be. What, what does practicing righteousness look like? What does practicing even the spiritual, our spiritual realm look like? That is what uh, John's trying to emphasize here, and I want to spend some time looking at that I do think if you're honest, as you read through the passage, even uh, a couple of verses leading up to this point, uh, this idea is complicated by the fact that it almost seems that John is advocating a works-based righteousness to some degree, right? He talks about us being righteous because we practice righteousness, right? And it's something that I think we can, uh, we, I want to explore. I don't think that is what he's advocating, even though it might seem like that. When we look carefully, we can see that John is actually uh, making a little bit more of a nuanced point. And if you look carefully, what John is saying here is that we don't practice righteousness to become God's children, but rather we, we practice righteousness because we are God's children. We don't practice righteousness to become God's children, but we practice righteousness because we are God's children. The uh, main thrust that John is trying to communicate is here is that because our Father, God, is righteous, we as his children have to practice righteousness. I think, let me illustrate this with, with maybe an example. Um, a few weeks ago, um, 
well, we, we've been in the process of uh, trying to get Ezra to do more of this, more of his own stuff, right? We're tired of doing all the stuff for him, so we're like, we're trying to teach him how to brush his teeth, and uh, uh, we're, we're making progress, but it's not quite there yet, but one of the things that we've been trying to do is just give him the, with all his teeth coming out, he just doesn't like anything in his mouth, and so we've been giving him this toothbrush to kind of play around and brush his teeth, and so the, a few days ago, uh, maybe a week or so ago, Lindsay uh, gave him his brush, toothbrush, and Ezra uh, proceeds to attempt, like he's brushing, just rolling his brush in his mouth, and he starts pacing around in the bathroom. Now, this is interesting, because this is exactly how I brush my teeth. <laughs> Why I'm pacing, I'm not sure, okay? Just leave me alone. It's just a whole different story. But uh, Lindsay comes over to me and says, he brushes his teeth exactly like you do. All right? Now, that's interesting. Um, but... The fact that he does that, the fact that Ezra brushes his teeth like me, does not make him my son, right? He brushes his teeth that way because he's my son, but that is not what makes him my son. It's very likely the fact that the reason he does that is probably because he is my son, right? But that is not the center of our relationship or the reason of, our, of his sonship to me or of, his, of him being my son. That is the nuanced point that John is trying to make here. Let's kind of move into what, it, what is John talking about when he talks about practicing righteousness. The word righteousness is one of those tricky uh, words that is kind of used in maybe religious circles, uh, but not in like everyday conversations. And sometimes the problems of using words in specific uh, contexts without it being in everyday conversation is you kind of lose the practical implications of that word. And so I just want to spend some time kind of unpacking that word uh, righteousness here. The, one of the major meanings of the word righteousness is kind of captured in this idea of God's covenant relationship with his people, right? So whether it's God with uh, Yahweh with Israel or God and his covenant with us and our expectation and his expectation for us. That's basically what the word righteousness captures. However, when you look at the everyday normal use of the word righteousness in the Greek, it translates more closely to our English word virtue, Right? And virtue, it basically captures, carries this idea of the ability to know what is right and doing what is right. So the ability to know what is right, excuse me, know what is right and do the right thing. And that's essentially what John is trying to capture here when he talks about practicing righteousness. That by being virtuous or being righteous, you do what you know to be right. The challenge, though, that John is trying to, uh, it almost seems obvious now that I unpack it that way, where he, talks, he says to practice righteousness to believers. But the challenge that he's trying to uh, address here is that a lot of times there seems to be a disconnection between knowing what is right and doing what is right. right? It's something that we've all seen um, in churches and in our own lives. So a lot of times we know what we need to be doing, we know what we need to be doing to be righteous, but a lot of times we fail to do it for whatever reason, whether it's sin or hang-ups, baggage, emotional issues, whatever the case may be. And John is trying to address that disconnect that he had with his with readers, and I think it's very prevalent in our own times in the American church. John is trying to push us past that. He's trying to teach us that virtue develops in our life when we actively find ways to practice it. Virtue develops in our lives when we actively find ways to practice it. I think it's important to, uh, uh, to uh, address when we look at what that looks like to practice it. It basically means that we actively find ways to address sin in our lives. Right? 
that sin is not just something in the back of our mind, but we actively as believers fight sin daily. How do we do that on a regular basis? That is what John is trying to help us understand here. We've all heard and uh, probably agree with this adage of practice makes perfect, right? We've all heard it. We've probably all said it at some point, right? But I was just thinking about this. Imagine if the average basketball player, like in the NBA, practiced his basketball shots, free throws, the same amount that the average Christian practiced righteousness, right? Imagine that the average basketball player practices just as much as the average Christian practices righteousness, he will be a very terrible basketball player, right? Um, if, if, as the average Christian, we, uh, if uh, addressing sin only looks like the hour that you spend on a Sunday morning, and that translates to the amount of basketball free throws that this basketball players do, he's not going to be in the NBA for too long, right? However, we think that as believers, we can experience spiritual matur- maturity and spiritual growth by just attending church on Sunday mornings or by just attending life group, right? We don't find ways or we neglect for whatever reason what it takes to practice righteousness in our everyday life. The, the reason why the basketball player practices his basketball shots is to address the weaknesses in his uh, basketball game. And the reason why the Christian practice righteousness is to address the sin areas in his life or her life so that sin does not cause havoc and wreck the life that God has given them. So as believers, I think the question that we need to be asking ourselves is, do we have times and spaces in our own life where we incorporate practicing being righteous? In our everyday life, is that something that we do? Historically, the church has seen uh, spiritual disciplines as occupying this role. And spiritual disciplines, we've ta- I've talked about it briefly a couple of times before, but basically spiritual disciplines are just a, ch- a channel or a way where we methodically and regularly address the sinful desires and habits in our own lives. Where th- we, through the grace of God, address the sin areas in our lives. And the key words there are regularly and continuously. Not once a week, but every day and every moment where we are, uh, where we are cognizant of the sin in our own lives, we're cognizant that we, being God's children, have to address those areas in our lives. We talked about, I just want to spend a few times, minutes looking at what some of the spiritual disciplines are. We talked about fasting the last time I was, I was up here, where we talked about fasting is a great way to address the excesses in your life, right? If you feel like there are areas in your life where you, uh, where you have an unhealthy relationship with a certain thing, fasting from that thing can help you address that. Uh, we talked about um, confession as another example. Confession forces you to be, uh, admit the fact that you are not perfect or admits, uh, ad- uh, forces you to admit the fact that you need God's grace uh, to grow in the spiritual life. Um, giving, giving financially forces you to challenge the dependency you might have with money. As you give, it forces, it puts to death that uh, greed or that uh, uh, idol that we have in money. Same thing with being part of a life group, right? As you spend time in community, in the uh, Christian community, what it forces you to do is to forces you to address the pride in your life, where you have now to be, you, have, you are asked to be vulnerable and be present in the life of other people. All these are examples of how you as a believer can practice righteousness, because if these are done appropriately, they force us in some ways to address the sin in our lives. 
we can no longer uh, just walk around like nothing has ever happened or, or that we are perfect people. Now, whether it's with these or other examples, there's lots of different spiritual disciplines. The key question that we need to be asking ourselves is, when you look at your life and schedule, do you have enough opportunities where you take the time to address the scenarios in your life? Are there sufficient opportunities in your life to address the scenarios in your life? Or like I mentioned, are we waiting for organized, formal settings to address those? And that is why John places this practicing righteousness as central to our identity as God's children. Because God is righteous, and if we are his children, the sign of our paternity is that we practice righteousness too. So it's important that it is not an afterthought. Now, I'll be honest, if your life and schedules are like mine and my family's, um, chances are that you have to make time for these things. That you're never finding, going to find the time for it. You have to actually decide that this is times that we are going to do uh, prayer or reading the scripture or attending life group or uh, being part of the Sunday uh, uh, worship, uh, Sunday morning uh, worship. But it's important that, we, uh, we pr- that that is the only way that you can consistently practice righteousness, where you intentionally put the, uh, make the decision to do so. So that's the first expression of God's love, which is his adoption. And our response to that is practicing righteousness. If we move on to the second expression of God's love, and that is his promised return uh, for his church and our transformation into his likeness. We see that in chapter 3 and verse 2 where he says, Beloved, we are God's children, and now what we will be has not appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as as he is. And so here... Um, what uh, John is reminding us that God has not just adopted us for his namesake, right? God has not just adopted us uh, because it was a nice thing to do. He adopted us and saved us so that we might be transformed into his likeness, so that he can, he can spend eternity with us and that we can be in community with God forever. If you read through scripture, we get the sense that God does not plan to keep the world in its current state Um, and leave it in its current state. As we read through scripture, what we notice is that God has a plan for this world, and that is to come back, judge the world of its sin, and restore it to its wholeness. That is the plan that we see laid out throughout scripture. And so we, we, we see that Jesus will one day physically return for the second time and transform us into be like him in glory and to live with him forever. And the idea of Jesus returning um, to us is this uh, idea of appearing that John uses in this verse that I just read and in the verse above. Uh, but throughout the, church, throughout the Bible, excuse me, the church is identified as the bride and Jesus is identified as the bridegroom. And this final appearing and uh, uh, reconciliation is uh, described as a marriage supper where the bride is uh, gathered up with the bridegroom and we all celebrate in this marriage supper. I think it's important, since it is a marriage uh, imagery that the Bible uses, it is important, I think, for us to understand what the Jewish idea of marriage and uh, kind of the wedding looks like, right? Just so that we can understand what John is trying to refer to here or what John is trying to communicate to his readers. It's always interesting, I think, when, um, when I hear stories about how cultures uh, see marriage and conduct marriages. Um, and a lot of times, the other day I was talking to a couple and I was 
they were asking a little bit about my family, and I was just telling them, like, in the Indian culture, um, still to this day, most marriages are arranged marriages, right? And I think a lot of people find that uh, very strange. Um, I find that strange, even, and even I'm from it. Um, but um, the idea is that the uh, parents of the bride and the groom uh, get together and decide, and with the consent of the bride and the groom, they arrange the marriage, right? And that's not um, unusual for a lot of East Asian cultures, uh, but very foreign to our American idea of, uh, where finding your soulmate or spouse is kind of the critical and, uh, you know, what, that's what's valued. I remember um, when I, was, uh, I had to go through this process myself, um, my marriage wasn't arranged, but uh, my mom had come. I remember to this day, my mom had come, I think I had, was, had turned 25, Right, every Indian uh, kid has this clock in the back of their mind when they know this conversation is going to be happening. Right? And so I kind of somehow missed the clock. And so my uh, turn 25 and my mom comes to me and is like, well, we're getting old, right? It's time to get married, time to raise a family. Um, and goes on to talk about how, when she got married, et cetera, et cetera. And I was like, oops, I forgot that this was coming, right? I was like, uh-oh, I need to do something about this. So uh, thankfully, God brought Lindsay into my life, and we got married, and um, I escaped um, by the skin of my teeth. <laughs> I escaped. It wasn't a pretty process, but um, I got out of it. Um, but it's important to, um, but just for the record, Lindsay and I were talking about this the other day, we do plan to uh, arrange Ezra's marriage. <laughs> Um, she's not a big fan of it, but I think, now looking back, being a parent, I think this is actually a great idea. <laughs> um, but in the Jewish culture, it was actually very common for the parents to arrange the marriage. Um, the way it worked is the father of the groom uh, identified a bride for his son, and the, um, once the bride was selected, they would conduct a ceremony that betrothes the two people together, where there's a ceremony, um, they drink a glass of wine, uh, and celebrate this union. At this point, a contract is signed, a marriage contract is signed, where the bride agrees to reserve herself for the groom, and the groom agrees to uh, give his life to care for this bride. That is what's captured in this contract. And once this, happen, this happens, the ceremony happens, uh, it's called uh, the betrothal ceremony, and they are technically married at this point, right? But they're not allowed to live together for another year. And what happens at this point is the bride uh, goes back to her father's home to prepare for the wedding, to get ready for the wedding preparations. The groom actually goes back to his father's house and uh, prepares a place to bring his bride home. In those days, in the biblical times, it wasn't a different house. He actually added rooms to his father's house to be able to um, bring his bride home to, to his father's house. And... Um, while at the betrothal ceremony, he gives, a promise, uh, he gives a gift to the bride as a promise of his return. And then that is how uh, the ceremony took place. And he uh, went to his father's house and she would go to her, father, her uh, parents' house. And they uh, would be doing their, um, the necessary things to get ready for the wedding. The time in between this, between the betrothal and the wedding, was about a 12-month period. It's changed a little bit uh, in this modern day and age, but it was about 12 months um, at the time of this, at the time when John would have written this. John, uh, at the, uh, the bride at this point kind of knew that at the end of 12 months that the uh, groom would show up 
and they would get married. But she didn't know the exact time or the date because it was actually the father of the groom that decided when the groom could bring the bride home because he was essentially responsible for some of the preparations. Right? And once the time had arrived, the, the groom would uh, go over to the bride um, and they would have a wedding ceremony um, and there's a joyful ce- celebration of a marriage supper. And uh, if you've, I don't know if you guys have seen uh, any, any of these marriage ceremonies, um, maybe like that's, maybe that's some on the East, maybe a Jewish one or even an Arab one. I grew up in the Middle East and I, we would see these. These are like seven day long uh, processes. Music is blasting from the day of the, the wedding starts for seven days, all the day and night uh, till the end of seven day. People just show up in the morning, party all day, go home, go to sleep, and then come the next day to continue the party. So this is a seven day kind of deal. And this is essentially the way the Jewish people conducted their wedding ceremony. But after all this was done, the, uh, the festivities are done, the, bride, the groom is free to then take his bride to his house. And they uh, fulfill the full covenant of the marriage. Okay, that's basically the idea of how uh, the Jewish people understood uh, marriage and the wedding ceremony. Now, some, some describing some of these things, and if you're familiar with some of the imageries that are used in Scripture, you kind of see some of the overlaps, don't you? Right? We see how Jesus, as he came as a man, died on the cross and made a new covenant with us. Right? And in that process, we have been betrothed to him. He, as when he ascended to heaven, gave his Holy Spirit as a gift that he will return one day to take us back home. As we look at this uh, passage uh, and look at some of these other imageries, we see that um, in different places, that as we look at Jesus' words to his disciples, first when, in John 14, when Jesus says, I think we sang about it today, where Jesus says, in my Father's house is many mansions. I go to prepare a place for you, right? Uh, towards the end of John uh, or in other parts of John when uh, the, disciples are a- the disciples ask Jesus when will you be back when will you come back uh, Jesus re- replies and says that no man knows the hour of the day except for the father not even the son again kind of alluding back to that imagery of the Jewish understanding of the marriage John uh, as we look at this the verses that we just read where he talks about it being uh, about Jesus appearing and we appearing with him and us being transformed into him, it almost all sounds glorious. It's un, uh, this is otherworldly. It's not something that we uh, can even fathom to a certain degree. But G- John reminds us that we will be transformed into his likeness. That as we practice righteousness, our inner man's being refined. And on this day when Jesus appears, our inner man and our outer man will be transformed into his likeness, into his glorious likeness. Uh, Paul talks a little bit about this in the ch- when he writes to the church at Philippi where he says that our lowly bodies will be transformed into his glorious uh, likeness. Um, I'm, all, all, I'm, not always, I'm not actually sure what the specifics are on this, right? I always thought, is it look, what does it look like for, um, for us? Does it mean that every guy is just going to have a six-pack or every lady is just going to have uh, the ideal body or is this... Uh, uh, what exactly are the specifics? We're not sure. Chances are it will be better than what you have today. So if you want to find comfort in that, that's definitely, um, you know, I find comforting. I find that comforting. But the, the idea here is that, um, the idea of the transformation is that our inner man, our outer man will be complete. Right? The fight that we have today against sin and sickness will be over. 
that Jesus will come to restore all things to its proper place. I think this is something that is comforting to me, uh, in addition to the sixth fact, that, uh, the, that all of this will be over and that we can rest uh, in his uh, rest in, for eternity from battling sin and sickness, right? Um, we don't have to battle cancer. We don't have to battle death anymore. We don't have to battle the brokenness of this world, but we will, all of those will be restored um, in Jesus. Some of you are thinking, why can't we do that now? Why can't we go, uh, why can't we go there now? That sounds good. Um, unfortunately, it's not here yet, right? That's what we're waiting for. It's coming, but it's not here yet, and that's what we're looking for. So John describes this waiting period in the third verse of chapter 3 where he says, and everyone who thus hopes, referring to this hope of his return, purifies himself just as he is pure. God's expression of love is the promise of his return, and our response to that is an eager waiting uh, to purify, uh, eager waiting as we purify ourselves. That just as the bride waits for the groom to come, we as the church, wait, we as believers wait, await the return of our Savior so that we can be with him for eternity. Now, what is this idea of purifying ourselves that John captures here? Kind of, uh, let's just look at that before we kind of wrap up today. Purifying basically is best understood as being set apart, right? It indicates a sense of dedication to the process of being ready to obey God. Purifying in other parts of Scripture is also called sanctification. And um, sanctification also basically, again, big word, but basically just means set apart, uh, consecrated for something specific. And so we look at the word of purification. It basically is centering your everyday life around your identity as God's child. It's centering your everyday life around the around your identity as God's child. So when a believer is in the process of experiencing sanctifications, their schedules, their values, their time spent will all revolve around the fact that they're child of God. It will all re revolve around them becoming more like Jesus. All of the focus is not entertainment or uh, progress or more money, but it is to be more Christ-like. So everything that they do revolves around that. Going back to the sports analogy um, and thinking about this basketball player that we talked about, right, when we think about uh, what um, the schedules of a basketball player, for example, or a professional athlete, it's based very structured and it's very focused. And it's very focused around this one thing, which is that he is a professional athlete. Whether it's what he or she eats, whether it's what he or she, uh, how much rest she gets, how much practice she does, Everything is all revolved around the fact that, they, that he or she is a professional athlete. In the same way, John is trying to communicate that for us as Christians. He's reminding his readers that to commit ourselves to living with the sole purpose of being Christ-like. So our lives and our priorities are built around our identity as Christians and being Christ-like as opposed to what the world thinks is the best. So we make decisions that line up with godly values and not worldly values. What we value, uh, we value what God says is right and not what the world says is right. And I think this is a little bit difficult. Uh, it is not something that um, is easy to say but much more harder to do because uh, confessing sin versus hiding it is difficult. Having faith in God is not intuitive. Right? We would like to trust our own efforts. Uh, waiting for Jesus to provide for our needs is not compatible with our impatience. Right? 
And so John here is reminding us that for us to, uh, as we wait for the Savior, our primary focus and goal needs to be to become Christ-like. And that is his focus when he talks about the purification. What is interesting here, as we think about the Jewish tradition, wedding tradition, is the period between, the betrothal period, where the bride and the groom uh, is betrothed to each other, and the wedding date, that, that period in between um, is called Kiddushin in Hebrew. And Kiddushin actually translates to English as sanctification. Isn't that interesting? That as the bride gets ready for her groom, as she's preparing for this wedding ceremony, John is asking us, us as, his, as Christ's bride to prepare ourselves to meet our Savior. And that is something that I find something uh, very interesting as John uh, talks about the idea of appearing and us being transformed into his likeness. Just as the bride was set apart and got ready for the groom's arrival, in the same way, both practicing righteousness and purifying ourselves has this effect of preparing ourselves to meet our Savior. I want to end today by looking at the first verse that we read today. And that is chapter 2, verse 28, where it says, And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. The, I, John is saying, if we neglect practicing righteousness, and not purifying ourselves, if the goal of our Christian life is not to be more Christ-like, when Christ appears, we are going to be ashamed to stand in front of him. As I was thinking about this passage, I'm reminded of the scene in the garden. Right? Adam and Eve lived in community with each other and in, with God in complete harmony, where they experienced the joy and the fullness of being in God's presence. We, after, the, after the serpent shows up, they eat of the forbidden fruit. Uh, we see something significant happening there. And we read in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 8, that as the, Lord appear, as the Lord appeared in the garden in the cool of the day, the man and the woman hid themselves in the trees in shame. I, that seems to be the imagery that John is trying to capture here, is that Sin left unchecked in our lives can erode the assurance that we have in Jesus. It can misinform identity that we have in Jesus. It can misrepresent uh, who we are to God. And John's focus here, as he thinks about, uh, as he's writing to his readers, is to ensure that um, meeting God uh, when he appears is critical and as, as believers and for us to be able to do that in a way that uh, glorifies him for us to be experienced in, in his fullness, we have to be transformed by practicing righteousness and purifying ourselves. What happened in the garden um, that day as um, God loses, or as the as man and woman loses their uh, privilege of being with God, God has since then uh, been on a, uh, on a project to restore that harmony where he wants to restore complete uh, unity with us and live in eternity uh, with us. And part of that, and really all of that, begins with his adoption as, of us as his sons and daughters, but it uh, continues into the fact that he wants to spend eternity with us. And that is John's writing as he's focused on those two pieces where God demonstrates his love as, uh, by our adoption and we respond to that by practicing righteousness and God demonstrates it by the promise of his return 
and we respond to it by purifying ourselves. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time as we've kind of walked through this uh, John's writing in his epistle, reminding his uh, readers, especially believers, to practice righteousness because they're children of God and to purify themselves so they become more Christ-like. That this hope of God's return will fuel their, um, fuel their efforts to purify themselves. That they see themselves as children being born of God and living out that identity. Help us as a church to uh, wrestle with this. John's words are um, pertinent to us just as much as it was back then. I am uh, reminded that if neglected, the effects that sin can have on our lives includes eroding our confidence that we have in you. It can cause us to be more prideful, for us to look to ourselves to save ourselves, look to our efforts to save ourselves instead of looking at you. You've completed the work and you've made a way for us. I pray that we continue to respond to the gift of salvation that we have received from you and being adopted children in your kingdom that as we wait for you, that we will continue to uh, live our lives, arrange our schedules, structure our families to become more Christ-like so that we can stand with you when you appear. I ask all this in Jesus' name.